This is the Sales Gravy Podcast. Hi, I'm Jeb Blunt, best-selling author of Fanatical Prospecting Objections, Sales EQ, and Inc., and I'm here to help you open more doors, close bigger deals, and rock your commission check. Welcome back to another episode of the Sales Gravy Podcast. In our studio with me today is Jim Carr, who is a professor, a clinical professor of marketing at a university that I have a hard time saying. He's also a Gator, uh, but he's a professor at the University of Alabama, and he is a Gator, which is just awful. All I have to say about that is go dogs. So uh, before we get started, I want you to go check out Salesgrave University. Salesgrave University is where teams from all across the globe come to learn how to sell. And we cater to small teams, scaling teams, and we even have enterprise solutions for large teams who are looking to grab content and put on their sales enablement and learning and development platforms. We have amazing experts like Jim, who we'll, we'll be talking to today, who have courses that you can take on Sales Gravy University on all kinds of different subjects. And look, if you've never taken a course on Sales Gravy, you can go right now to learn.salesgravy.com. That's learn.salesgravy.com. Just use the code free course, pick any course you want, and go test it out. You'll love it. So go to learn.salesgravy.com to check out Sales Gravy University. Jim Carr, Professor Dr. Jim Carr. Welcome to Sales, the Sales what, Gravy Podcast. What a, uh, Jeb, what a pleasure to be here. I've enjoyed being part of Outbound for a couple of years. It's wonderful to be here uh, at Sales Gravy. I must be clear on one thing, though. I do like the Bulldogs, but specifically uh, the Samford University Bulldogs. Uh, they're in Birmingham where my, my oldest child plays football and are the Southern Conference reigning champions. So there you go. There you go. And I have to say, my sister Serena Fortenberry is also a professor at the University of Alabama, and uh, but we disowned her years ago, and <laughs> we haven't, I haven't seen her in about ten years. I was wondering what the Thanksgiving uh, <laughs> dinner conversations would be like. So, well, she's the the problem is that is that her husband is uh, is Ole Miss. So you've got this. It's just this. You know, the SEC has got it fractures families, <laughs> but it just means more. It does. It does mean more. <laughs> So, uh, so you're a professor uh, at University of Alabama. You teach marketing to both undergrad and grad students, uh, an array of, of of subjects around marketing and messaging and innovation. Uh, real quickly, like, how did you end up being a a doctor of marketing? Well, and and don't hate me because I'm a PhD. Uh, it was well, very, listen, very practical in what we but do. Let's yes, be clear. Yes. We're in Thompson, Georgia right now. It's a little town <laughs> in Georgia. PhD here means poor, hungry, and driven. <laughs> like my hometown also <laughs> in Georgia. Um, it's It's been a, a bit of a mix, Jeb. And and really what I'm doing, and it's been a, over my uh, the course of my career, it's been a, a mix of practical and uh, conceptual. So I uh, I have the all the educational background. Um, I uh, started as a as a professor, started doing some consulting work, et cetera, and committed heresy a few years ago. So I actually made tenure, uh, not at Alabama, at another university, but I had a consulting client who said I needed to get a real job. And specifically, he wanted me to be head of marketing for his private company. So I was a CMO for a number of years. And then uh, Lately, for the past a little bit more than a decade, I've been working privately. So I, I do consulting work, and it's really made a, a pivot. When I, one of the things, Jeb, when I was a CMO, and we had a direct sales team, and, and we also sold to distributors. And 
I was, I was frustrated because we had these great messages, right? We had this great positioning. We'd done all the research. We knew how we wanted to take a niche brand and stand in a very crowded field with big, angry competitors. And it was, it was a frustrating experience sometimes because not only our direct sales force, but trying to work with the salespeople at our independent distributors. And over the course of time, as I'm becoming now in my consulting work, which is with B2B sales teams and trying to bring that together, bridge that gap. So how do we get all the way from a marketing message, which is really about positioning ourselves in the marketplace and doing that background to this sort of thing, the, a conversation that it's either one-to-one or few-to-few, where or whether it's happening in person or virtually or over the phone, how does that translate into sales conversations? And as we can talk about, it's really that unit of the selling conversation that I think is incredibly important these days. It's, it's harder and harder to get those opportunities. They're precious, and we have to really show ourselves in a particular way to lead that conversation, get more opportunities, and close more deals. So with mine has been a, this mix of it's the marketing, it's the audience understanding and the psychology, but also the practical day-to-day realities of salespeople and sales leaders of how do we bring that into the field. Let's go back to your childhood. Oh, a dark place. <laughs> so you grew up in Swainsboro, Georgia. Correct. Okay, so that's, uh, what, about an hour from here? Just over an hour from here. Yeah, and Swainsboro's a little town. Little town uh, known uh, as the place where eight-year-old Hank Williams Jr. played his first concert. Wow. As, as stated in his uh, his autobiography, Living Proof. That's about the only thing that uh, that it's well, known for. Yes. Well, you've got you've got dove hunting and and oh yeah, quail we got a lot of dove and, and deer of, and quail. Yeah, and cotton farms. Absolutely. So, and I grew up in a small town. I grew up in Harlem, Georgia, mm-hmm. and little tiny itty bitty town. Laurel and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy, That's exactly. Right. And now we're in Thompson, Georgia, which is right next to it. Uh-huh. I'm I'm curious, just the like. You went to what, Swainsboro High School, I'm assuming, or I went to an even smaller school. Um, I was, and and to be, you know, I want to be humble here, but I was the valedictorian of my senior class at David Emanuel Academy. Okay, it, it, we but there play... were twenty, there were twenty three people I know, in my class. So. I know David Emanuel Academy. I you know where not. it is because let me let me tell you a crazy story about David Emanuel Academy because okay. my son went to Briarwood, not okay. far from here. Okay. And we played David Emanuel Academy in football. Mm-hmm. So one morning, I wake up, walk out of my hotel room, walk over to uh, to uh, to Park Avenue, go to a food truck in New York City, uh-huh. grab my breakfast, hop in a car, go to the airport, fly to Atlanta. I I'm I wake up on Park Avenue. I end up. At David Emanuel in the in the stadium, I drove down I sixteen, like trying to get yeah. to this thing. I got there, I got there about halftime, and I'm like, this is the most surreal change of a venue in my entire <laughs> life. I will never forget it because David Emanuel is in the middle of freaking nowhere. It's in a really really small town yeah. called Stillmore, Georgia. And by the way, um, this little. This guy went to DEA. I worked for two years uh, long ago as a junior banker at 48th and Park in Manhattan. <laughs> so it's it's the whole gamut. We we live these incredible lives, don't I mean, we? Jeff? So, just like there's, I'm telling you, there is nothing in the world like leaving Park Avenue and end up at David Emanuel Academy because Stillwell looks like something out of a zombie movie. Like seriously, it would it could be in uh, in the what Walking Dead. Yeah. Like it's just. <laughs> 
crazy. Okay, so so you go to David Emanuel County, a little tiny. Yes. And and now you're on the world stage, and you're having conversations with people about messaging. You're well known. You're an author. Like, how did like what was the iteration to get you to that place? I mean, was it something that you always wanted to do? Did you feel that you were bigger than the small town that you were in? Um, I mean, you, you still are in a small town with Tuscaloosa. It's not a big city, but right. it's a small right. city. But, uh, but Alabama is the world stage. I mean, it is like it's one of the greatest universities on the planet. It is one of the most well-known universities Very on the planet. Very well-known, yes. Uh, Anywhere and, in the world. Yeah, and it's, you know, people, people in fact, people come from all over the world to go to Alabama, yes. which they like because they get out-of-state tuition. <laughs> so, but, like, how did you make that that leap from, and I, folks, if you're listening to this, I can't overemphasize how, like, this tiny little speck of a place David Emanuel Academy is. You can't picture it in your mind, but it's, like, Picture it's, it, but it's smaller than what it you're is picturing. in the middle yes. of nowhere. Like <laughs> it's like a place where you get trapped and you never get out of. That was a thought. You know, Jeff, I, I wish I could say, and like a lot of us, that maybe not some grand plan, but there was a thought because I, I grew up. Um, I was one of those, I think, very lucky, very blessed kids, um, in that I lived in the same house in the same hometown in Swainsboro all the way from birth to when I went off to college. And that part was great. There was a stability, and you know, at the time it seemed very constraining. Uh, and I appreciate it more now as a parent uh, in many ways too. But I always thought I, I, I wanted to see more. It's not like I was bigger than it, but I always I wanted to sample. Uh, my parents liked to travel, and, and that was a little bit of a lens as well. I was like, oh, they, they do some cool things. And so that was part of going to the University of Florida as an undergrad because it was big. The, at the time, the University of Florida was more than four times the size of my hometown. I wanted that and just dive into all that part. I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly, but I did work just to have gas and insurance money for my car when I was 16 at a little AM radio station in Swainsboro. And it was, and actually was my first like real sales job too. So at first you, you start out um, AM radio stations. This was a 1000 watt blowtorch, which covered probably Emanuel County and not much else. And they, they put you in, you know, young kids. So you, you're going to work the shift that no one else wants. And then after a while, it's like the, the station manager was like, okay, here's what I want you to do. Uh, we've got, let's say, 4th of July is coming up, and we're going to sell some packages. So just go around town. You know everybody and say for 40 bucks, you know, we'll give you 40 mentions on the air like, you know, please don't drink and drive uh, for Independence Day. Be safe from your friends at so-and-so record service. And um, it was uh, to go out, and, and that was just another way to make make a little extra money. But to, to the point is I just I've, I've loved the fact I appreciate the small town part. Um, but I have also appreciated being able to, to travel the world and, and meet really interesting people and work with big companies and small companies and entrepreneurs and the like. It's just been a path that has taken me from my undergraduate work. I did my MBA work at Duke. And I, I said, oh, I'm going to give New York City a couple of years. And I gave it a couple of years and said, that's not for me long term. Um, doing some entrepreneurial things going back, getting a PhD, went back to Florida. And then it was this whole thing about just trying to understand uh, and maybe it came back from the radio days. Maybe it came back from selling stuff when I was a, when I was a, a kid of 
what do you say? You know, how do you kind of judge the value of what you have? How do you make sure that you're, if you don't know someone already, how do you assess what they want, what they need? How can I help them? How can I make some money doing this? Um, I don't know, Jeb. It's, it's like I say, not a grand plan, but, but has taken me the path that now I kind of live out this, this melding of marketing and sales and trying to understand audiences and trying to understand this strange, squishy thing called messaging. How do you think that being a Southerner and being from a small town helped you develop a knack for messaging? And I, and I ask this because I started traveling you know, early, early, early. I traveled all over the world. I'll continue to travel all over the world. I, right out of school, I was, you know, I'd grab my guitar in a backpack and traveled all over Europe and played the guitar for money during the day and drank beer at night and did, you know, just got along. But I found that being a Southerner made it so much easier for people to meet me. Like I was, I had all these friends. Some of it was just the accent, which I, yes. you know, you've lost your accent. You've got the radio accent. Mine comes out every once in a while. Mine too. And, uh, but I just felt like that that just made it easier. And what I found in business is that I've been able to to basically shift from culture to culture to culture a lot easier, somewhat because of the same thing. I lived in the same house, I same parents. I went you know all the way through high school, and I learned this um, this level of respect that just has served me very, very well in different places because I think it it causes you to slow down just a little bit and observe before you jump in the middle of assuming that your message is going to work. But I'm just I'm curious from your standpoint, and maybe maybe it hasn't served you at all, but how, how has that helped you? It's a great question, and we've had some similar paths along that way. To a degree, I think it's a, a little bit of a hindrance. Mostly it's good. I think the hindrance part is... When people hear the Southern accent, they think, well, you know what they think. You know, not quite as sharp, not quite as – and it would frustrate me. I remember working as a that junior banker in New York, and I would be more accustomed to speaking a little more slowly and and not slow, but not as fast as they slow. And it was more like, you know, come on. Uh, but uh, – and maybe that was part of where I, I, I wanted to make sure that I, I had the credentials. I had the experience. I was going to work hard. I was going to show them I was as smart as anybody else. Uh, I think that probably drove a lot of my decision to do an MBA, go to Duke, you know, and, and all that. But I think overall, when it comes to messaging, conversation, listening, that that sort of background and the respect for people, you know, there is a respect for elders. There's a little bit of slowing it. Storytelling is more of a, a natural thing in conversation. I think, um, again, listening, reflecting off of what people have to say, and just the natural inclination to engage other people in conversation. It's more of a, uh, it is tends to be more of a regional thing. That's not exactly what I experienced in Manhattan in the time that I lived there. Uh, but I think it serves one well. And um, whether it's, you know, being proactive, making the call, engaging people when uh, others might not do so quite as readily. When I look back at it, to, to your question, I think it, it only helped me because that was to me more normal, that you would actually engage people, listen to them, share stories, have those yeah. relationships. Uh, you, as we know, it's not exactly normal across business uh, in the U.S. I've always used the, you know, people think you're stupid if you're a Southerner to my advantage yes. by letting people rope themselves into a, a knot. Like I just use it as rope-a-dope. You know, they're, <laughs> they think I'm stupid, they're talking at me, and then they don't realize that, you know, behind all that facade, 
I'm I'm actually a lot smarter than they think I am, especially <laughs> right. in negotiations. And uh, and I just I use it to pull people in. So when when people think you're dumb, are they're stupid, are they're smarter than you? They'll have a tendency to talk more. And if people are talking, I'm in control. As long as there's as long as their mouth is moving, I'm I'm running the show. That's right. And so I th I think that you, know, you and maybe the the lesson here is that. There are strengths and weaknesses, no matter who you are, where you're from, what you do, uh, whether you, and, and you think about, imagine someone who, like David, who is our, uh, our head videographer, who is from Hungary originally, and he's got a Hungarian accent. So that could impact you as well in terms of how people talk and treat you. Everything can be used one way or the other if you, if you choose to, to look at it as this can be an asset for me, depending on which situation I'm in. I, I think that's very true, Jeb. And to be self-aware enough to know this is a strength and a way that you might be able to leverage somehow to maybe get that conversation, have someone listen to you in a way uh, that they might not have before. So uh, that's a, a very good general point, knowing your strengths, knowing um, what your tendencies are, and, and being able to play off of that. Let's talk about college kids. Hmm. Um, I'm going to th throw something out at you, and I just – this is – completely out of left field uh folks this is how carefully we plan these <laughs> these podcast interviews i i've hired a number of mbas who cannot write a paragraph in english using good grammar and punctuation who have graduated from well-known universities cannot write can't write a press release can't write a paragraph can't write an email can't put words together in a way that is uh that is direct and meaningful um write sentences that are you know about 700 words longer than they need to be <laughs> all right what is going on in the world where people are graduating they've gone through grade school high school is this is this um a uh uh, epidemic or is it just my little thin myopic slice of the world and I've just gotten I've just had I've rolled the dice the wrong what's going on it's not a myopic slice of the world uh, it is but it's downstream of things that have been going on for a while and think of what do we ask people to do I learned multiplication tables I learned how to do math in my head uh, early on now it, you know, it was calculators and now it's I don't even know what it is anymore so so I, I can see cashiers be confused about making change, you know, if, if uh, that sort of thing. When it comes to writing, and this is, a, this is a really excellent point, Jeb, but we've made it easy for you to not have to write. And writing is, uh, you, people might think, well, I'm not necessarily a writer. Well, if you are in sales, if you're in management and leadership, yes, you are. And um, that can be a, a, a secret weapon for you. And also, the, the, the thing about writing, you've written more books than I, uh, but I found in writing my book that it forces an organization of stuff in your head. It really it gets you to be far more focused on what's important, how do I connect, what's the sequence, what's the structure, what are too many words. And there's a discipline about that. So going through writing makes you a better thinker as well as a better communicator, I find. But we don't, we don't, require that uh, going through school as much. Um, and so by the time you get to college and beyond, it, this is a skill and a discipline that is unfortunately rare. I was, uh, I was working on a consulting project a few years ago, Jeb, uh, and is with a, a well-known software company. We were putting together a playbook for 
specific message that their team needed to get to a new kind of buyer. And as part of that, we were putting together some, just some templates of email messages and stories and, and the like. And I remember the, uh, a manager who was participating in the workshop was bringing me some emails that they thought were pretty good, that represented, here's what we're doing that seems to be getting some traction. And I was horrified when I saw it because it were things like, it was as if it was a text message. So it was not the word U, Y-O-U, it was the letter U. It was not the word R, A-R-E, wow. it was the letter R. Um, and, and I thought, look, we don't want to be stuffy in our writing, but we also, how you write is an indication of your, your value. I've, I've uh, often heard it said, I don't even remember where I first heard it, is in the, in the selling process, in the customer's decision-making process, you will be delegated down to the level of, of someone who, of, of how you sound is the better way to put it and, and how you come across. And so it, it is, um, it's just a thing that I, I find with teams that sometimes we just need to revisit that um, and people don't know how to naturally do it because they've never been taught, they never had to. Well, I'm, I got a, a, a number of comments on this. I'm gonna start with, if you're a CMO and you're listening to this and if you know a CMO, send them this. Your salespeople are destroying your brand if you let them write like that. So you own this. Your marketing organization owns this. And I'm not talking about marketing needs to come in and write everything for salespeople because that's also a, that a, a script for awful. And I, back back when I was in my 20s, I got pulled in as a um, the manager of national sales development. And essentially what I was – is the person who came out of the field who who got embedded in marketing to teach marketing how to write things so that salespeople could put them in front of customers, and I've been a you know a, a student of messaging my entire life. Like I love words, I love writing, I love putting things together. But CMOs, marketing, you own the brand, and that individual salesperson in every single interaction with a customer, they're your brand. So you got to be very careful with that. So you need to somebody needs to start looking at what people are writing. Same thing with sales managers. The second thing here is the this what you said about like what you're writing is part of whether or not you close the deal or part of whether or not you get to the next step or part of whether or not you get leveled up to the CEO or you get leveled down to a billing clerk. Like so right. and and we have to think about every little thing that we do. So in, in most sales there's competitors, and most sales are won and lost by an edge. Like there's something that they feel. It's emotional. They're making a decision that way. If your writing is sloppy, no different if you show up and you look sloppy, you put yourself in a position to lose the deal. And and by the way, I'm on a soapbox right now, so people who have been listening to podcasts, you've heard me say this. I'm saying it again. Please stop showing up on video sales calls looking like, crap like stop it same thing with your email stop sending emails that are crap so that's a problem now as a salesperson as a leader as a trainer i spend a lot of my time teaching people how to write things for business so what i'm doing is okay so you're this is what you're going to say jim you know one of the things you told me was that you had a challenge in the mornings because it's taking too long to get everybody out the door because you've got this problem this problem this problem and here's how we're going to solve that. That's how I would say it, right? How I'd write it would be challenge, administrative burden, 
that's you know administrative burden um, creating inefficiencies in your operations. That's how I would write it. How I would say it would be that. And trying to teach salespeople that verbal communication matters, like because you're going to be presenting things, but the written word. In most cases, someone else is going to look at it, like the person who you gave the proposal to in most cases. This is real world, folks. Real world, I know that all the sales experts, they want to tell you, hey, you've got to go straight up to veto, find the, the, the very important top officer, go to the CEO, go to the CFO. Most of you are going to be selling to someone in middle management. Most of you are going to be selling someone who has to go to someone else to get a decision. Most of you are going to be in that situation. So whatever you give the person who has got to go sell it to somebody else is going to be taking your writing and giving it to that someone else. If they can't understand it, you lose. So it's teaching people how to write things and how to say things, and they're not the same. They're not the same, and in fact, there's as much importance of the retelling and the sharing of what you said and wrote as when you did it originally. And so a lot of salespeople will say, and they're, they're probably right, say, I'm great in the moment. I can tell the story. I can connect the dots between the frustration I'm feeling with administrative burden, and every morning is just chaotic, and it... And so if we could bring our solution in and, and really connecting and doing that well. However, that person, because we know that buying teams generally are getting larger. There are more people involved. It takes them longer to make decisions. Our solutions tend to be more complicated. And so your story, the, your message is going to get shared. Your, your email is going to get forwarded. Things are going to be copied. Someone's going to later on that afternoon come and say, oh, you, met with, you met with Jeb. You know, what was that like? What are these people all about? Uh, and and so if you're not tight, if you're not, whether you're writing, speaking, or both, if this isn't really well structured in a way that people can not only get it in the moment, but remember it and translate it for someone else when you're not around, then you probably haven't done as much as you could uh, in your sales messaging. And I, I use sales messaging and conversations a little bit interchangeably. But this is what you can control as a salesperson. If you're a sales leader, if you're a, a company leader, you can manage this too. This is what comes out of people's mouths and to the writing off mm -hmm. their, their fingertips as well. But these are the things that we can control and manage in a way to stand out. And, and to don't, don't wing it. And don't just go by what's been done for a while. This is the way for you to be distinctive and to have an identity as a problem solver who stands out from exactly. the others. So the way I look at it is, if you look at how a high schooler writes, high schoolers write like they talk. Mm -hmm. Professionals write like professionals. They talk like human beings, like it's an authentic conversation. I'm feeding back to you what I learned. I'm walking you through how I'm going to solve your problem. I'm, I'm articulating what the next, what the result's going to be. But how's, how I write it, I do the same thing, but I'm putting it in a format that no matter who looked at it, and an early boss taught me this. He said, you have to be, make sure that when you're not there, whatever you put in writing is selling for you. And if it's not, if it's not working, you, you lose. And if the person, the CEO picks it up and it's me, and, I, and you use the word horrified. Horrified is the word that I use for this. I'm horrified by what I'm reading here. If I pick it up and read that and it doesn't connect with me, I put it down. You got no shot at this. But you said something that I want to pull out because I, you kind of brushed over it, but it's really important. A lot of salespeople have got the ability to stand in front of another human being and tell a story, 
and be convincing and build a relationship and connect with other human beings. Like they're built with this. Like it's part of who they are. They're, they're able to demonstrate empathy. They're able to like tell the story and get the person thinking. They can do that. They use charisma and presence to, to move the world. And, and that works for them in many situations, but it doesn't work for them in all situations. And in fact, leaning on that charisma has a tendency to sub-optimize your income and go, go back to CMOs and in some cases destroy your brand because th there's, there's not the other piece there. So I wanna, I wanna roll into something that you may or may not have heard of, but have you ever heard of the machine gun corollary to Sutton's Law? No. Okay. Uh, please. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm interested. See, I'm, I'm leaning in. This is this yeah. is interesting here. The reason you haven't heard of it is because I totally made this up. Okay. So, <laughs> so, I think we have the title for the next book, right? <laughs> so before, are you familiar with Sutton's Law? Uh, not really. Okay. Or I've, I've probably forgot it long ago. Okay. So have you ever heard of Willie Sutton? Um, Willie, oh, Willie Sutton was the he got replaced, he got hurt, right? Was it the athlete? No, was no, Will, he was a bank robber. So oh, no, no, that, this is right. Okay, now I now I got it. it. Why do you rob banks? Exactly. So, so Willie Sutton was a bank robber in the 1920s and 30s, prolific bank robber, yes, and eventually became a consultant because he was a bank in the 1950s and 60s. But he was asked by a reporter, Willie, Willie, why do you rob banks? And he said, because that's where the money is. So the machine gun corollary to Sutton's law is exactly what you just articulated, right? One, another reporter another time asked him, why do you rob banks with a machine gun? And he said, because they won't give you money when you show up with a great personality. <laughs> and what That's you good. just said is, you, if you're going to go go to battle, right, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Like, don't show up with all your charisma where you've got another salesperson there that understands that messaging is multifaceted, that it is woven together in a narrative that you say and that you tell through the discovery that you made. And then it's a written word that you're positioning yourself and your solution. Marketing is going to help you with some of the positioning in terms of your like who we are as an organization and how that works. The salesperson fills in the gap by connecting the dot between, hey, here we are as an organization, and here's why you should pay attention to us. So, for example, uh, when I'm working with companies that have a, a, a deep commitment to their employees, when I'm working with the salespeople, I go, well, when you're working with another company and they have a deep commitment to their employees, don't tell them, well, we have this location and that location and go that location and go, I think we're going to work really well together because my organization really focuses on training and developing their employees. We treat our employees like a family. And one of the things I really love about your organization is you do exactly the same thing. Like show us where we're alike. That's where the art of selling comes from. The marketing person wrote the, the copy that's going to be your about us copy. So, so you have to understand that when you are going to battle in sales, that if you want to win, you better bring a machine gun because you're not going to win consistently on charisma and a great personality, even though a lot of salespeople believe that's what's going to carry the day. You have to be good at the craft. You have to be good at the messaging. And I think, Jim, you know, you would you would probably agree that really when it all comes down, when we're, you know, we're comes down to I'm making a decision, I'm either reading or listening to what you have said to me as a salesperson. And my brain turns those words into chemicals 
those chemicals create a feeling, and those emotions eventually guide the decision that I make because human beings feel first than we think. So, so essentially, words are chemicals. How about that? That's pretty cool, isn't it? So, talk to us a little bit about um, what, in particular, and I, I want to take this from the CMO and from the CRO. So, you're a chief revenue officer or a chief sales officer, wh- whatever acronym your customer, your company is given it these days, uh, and you are a CMO. What? How do these two things come together, and what are the things that they need to know about messaging right now in today's world as they go to market uh, to make sure that the individual who is on the ground having a conversation, mano a mano, with their customer is armed and dangerous and ready to win? Let's bring a few things together here. I'll try to do it in in a concise way. But you touched upon some very important themes. Uh, wherever you're coming at, if you're responsible for revenue, you're you know, the sales team, you're a frontline manager, individual rep, you're on the marketing side of things or the product side of things, all the folks who are involved in that message and in actually getting people to buy our stuff at high prices very often. Um, one of the things, and just to, to back up a bit, I, I've seen it for years and it continues to be, if you ask um, heads of sales, CROs, CMOs, what are some of the biggest challenges that that we have? And Bringing together sales and marketing is consistently viewed as both a goal and a challenge. And, and so what do, we, what do we do about that? You mentioned chemicals and the way our brains function. So you have a finely honed sense of structure about a conversation. So just to I'll unpack a little bit what you, what you said. So you're dealing with a training development company. And, and so you're probably having a conversation with a company because they fit the profile and they have an ideal customer profile. You're not going to go and try to sell services to companies that clearly don't really care about developing their companies. You already know who is going to be of the most value. So you're going to be talking to uh, to companies that may be the uh, best place to work or known for developing their people. They don't, they don't have people come in and leave really quickly. So you know there's a history, there's a commitment to, to where they invest, and you know what you do is going to be a particular, they will value it, and they'll use it, and they'll make money from it. Uh, so there's a, there's a preparation that has gone in there. So you're, you're having the right conversation with the right kind of organization. Uh, you also, I know you've, you've talked about this as well, there are certain words that in that conversation, you use the word because. One of my favorites in conversation, because, recommend, um, options, things like that. So that's tactical, but you've done it enough, you've taught it enough, you've seen it. So there's there's a discipline about the preparation. Where are we putting our message? There's a discipline about the, the specific tactics, the words, the stories that we share, the questions that we ask, how we actively listen, reflect things back, make sure the conversation moves. So there's a, there's a finely honed discipline uh, that I think sales, marketing, everyone in the company needs to, to think through and, and reverse engineer what makes for a great sales message and what makes for conversations that are tailored to the moment, they're with the right kind of prospects, we, they're memorable, they're distinctive, and we're likely to get value from them. The more that we do of these, the more opportunities we'll have, the, the bigger our deals will be, the, the faster close we'll have, all of those things. Um, so, so there's that, that you've almost over time gotten your brain to work in a certain way through that. That's the exception, Jeb. Our brains aren't naturally wired that way. 
So we're, we're built for comfort and pleasure. Well, if you think about though, our but the human brain is wired for stories, and they're wired for stories in a particular pattern. And they that pattern are. repeats itself over and over and over again all the way through human history. And if you think about sales or you think about the messaging that we need, we've got – We've got prospecting messaging. We call them in our world. We call them because statements. Right? Meet with me because. Yes. Uh, you've got uh, you've got creating interest messaging. So on a first time appointment, we're sitting down. We're having a conversation. I need to create enough interest through my messaging to get you to say, okay, I want to spend more time with you. So um, it's a, a small value bridge. What's the value of spending more time with me? You've got the uh, get me more. Get me you know get me to the next step messaging. So I need to go do a tour of your facility, or I need to meet Betty in billing, or I need to understand your data from your insurance carrier in order to give you these things, right? You've got messaging around that. And how do you, how do you create a picture in someone's head that, that makes them feel like they should give it to you? So for example, when someone says to me, why do we really need to go do any more discovery? I mean, why don't you just give me prices? I say, well, one of the things that I've learned about you is that you're a unique company. I mean, would you, would you say that? And they would go, yeah, I mean, we're, we're different. I go, yeah, most companies are. So most of my competitors, like they have a box. They just put everybody in the same box. But my company, we build the box around you. And the only way I'm going to be able to do that is to get more information about you and your organization. With that information, I'll put together a blueprint for exactly how we'll take care of you. That'll give you a true apples-to-apples comparison. And then from there, you can make the best decision for your company. So how about we get together next Thursday at 2? 100%, 100%, 40-year career, 100% of the time, I always move to the next step. Because, because what do people want, right? They want to feel unique in that moment. So you've got messaging around that. You've got messaging to build your business case. So the you know, framework like, you know, what's the challenge? What's the recommendation? What's the outcome? So business outcome messaging. And you have all of these different messaging pieces. And I think that when I go to organizations, I don't necessarily know that they really understand. And I mean this from both sales and marketing because marketing, marketing, I think, is all you know th- what we now call GTM strategy, um, but they're all go to market. And one of the re- things that I did when I worked in marketing was like these brochures are great, but there's eight paragraphs on here. I need four bullet points because I'm just trying to have a conversation with the customer, and I need to get them to say yes. I will move to the next step with you, not you know not like oh we understand everything about your company. So. I think that I think it's understanding the progression that you move in, you know, through. And then uh, you talk a lot about how leaders have to drive this. Yes. And the great leaders that I worked for were messaging leaders. Like they totally got this. And they would spend, like, I remember one of my leaders, we would spend hours like working on a proposal that we would take one paragraph and like we would spend lots of time on one paragraph just to make sure that it was all right, that we were conveying what we wanted to say. But I think you have to learn how to move through that that process and understand how the human brain operates in those situations. And at the very beginning, it's, can I trust you enough to give you more time? Uh, as they're evaluating to give you more time, you're really, you're talking to the limbic system in the amygdala and you're trying to convince that to allow the information to get into the neocortex because that part of the brain acts as a blocker. So I need to I need to be some do something new, shiny, different to get them to pay attention to sort of break the pattern. Um, and then as I move forward, I'm I'm much more in the you know the hero's journey pattern, which is you know you're in this situation now. It's untenable. Here, you know, I'm Obi Wan. I can I can pull you out of that, and I can show you a better place. Let's leave this planet on a spaceship and go far away. And then I've got to draw a picture of what that's going to look like. 
And where it gets complex and challenging is when I have multiple stakeholders and each of those stakeholders has a list of both emotional and personal and business outcomes. I've got to be able to tell stories, especially in a room full of people where I'm connecting with each one of those people based on what's most important for them in that message. And to me, like, that's like, like I, I got, it's the book of sales. Like it's the orchestra playing when you can get all the pieces right. I, I think that that's where, where marketing and sales organizations really begin to clash because the sellers say, this isn't working for me, but they don't know how to explain what they need. And the marketers, they, in many cases, their entire world is their only tool is a hammer. So they just see everything as a nail. They just bang on the nail I know that was a lot, and I, and I maybe maybe a little bit of my soapbox, but like <laughs> how, a good soapbox. Like how do you like how do you as a as a messaging guru put all that together? Let's bring together a few lines here that 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 you brought up. All of them good. I like your soapboxes, Jeb. They're great places to be. Uh, so you mentioned that we are wired for story. And, and I agree. We even talked about storytelling as kind of a Southern thing as well. But all of us are. We are engaged in stories, especially if we see relevance to ourselves. But at the same time, our brains are not wired for what I would call a really good selling conversation that's focused on the customer or the prospect. Because, and you, you talked about our, our, our limbic system, our, our lizard brain, we are wired chemically in our, in our brains for comfort and pleasure. And we are more comfortable talking about ourselves than the other person and the things that we know the best, such as our product, our history, our company, et cetera, et cetera, rather than having a good working hypothesis based on research and based on the work we've done about the other person and where they find themselves and, and in the and, case for change. And to make it worse, I'm going to let you go on, is that while we're talking about ourselves, we're actually getting a dopamine hit. We're getting a dopamine hit. While we're hit. doing right. that. So it's, we're getting, a, we're getting a, a reward for running our mouths. That's right. So to say that we'll just let this go uh, for ourselves and especially across a team is, is to say we're just going to fight chemistry, right? So uh, we can all say logically, well, of course it's about the customer or the prospect. Of course we're going to solve their problems. Of course we're going to do these. But in that moment, and if we're not, if we're not applying that ourselves and, and almost rewiring our own approach as individuals, but especially across a team, then it's a mess. So we're going to have people who um, are, are talking about themselves too much, and they're not connecting, and they're, they won't be the right sorts of opportunities. And it'll be very inconsistent because people are talking about their own stories, and it's not any, anything that's coherent across a team or across a company. So, so what do you do about that? I would say if you're, when you think about this from the marketing side, from the sales side, if you're a CRO, CEO, business owner, whomever, we, we can't let this kind of exist on its own. Because marketing and sales and product and enablement and all, they, they won't get together. What we have to do is force the issue. And I almost think through as if you had, um, you know, if you had two, two groups or two kids or something, were five, you, you, what do you do? You put them in charge to do something together that's in their, their best interest. And one of the things, what we're talking about here for some of the new content at Sales Gravy University, but we need a project that, that brings sales and marketing at least together uh, to solve what would be ideal conversations. And it's not a script, as you said, 
Um, one other point to, to put into this and, and make sure that your messaging and your conversations are really on point. You have different messages and frameworks for different points of a, of a buying process. And you and I are of a, a similar mind there. I, I think of it a slightly different language. But what's going on in your prospect's mind when, when you're reaching out to them? What is it that they're kind of thinking through? And then we want to we match our conversations and our message to where we think they are. So part of it may be, I haven't heard of you, so it's a, you know, who are you is going through their mind. So you have that, that, mm-hmm. you know, that general awareness getting to know you part. But they're also thinking through, if they've got a business challenge, Jeff, none of us like to change. We talk about, oh, continuous learning and being agile and pivot and stuff. Oh, we hate changing. I don't want to change what I have in my coffee, right? Uh, So the first thing that you have to uh, understand is that your prospect is weighing, why should I change what I'm doing or even consider it? Because it's a hassle. And it's risky and all those sort of things. Yeah, so by the way, a, even if it, even if they're in a completely dysfunctional situation where the world has fallen apart, they will choose status quo over change. It's the devil you know versus the one you yeah. don't. And so, you uh, that there's a conversation early in their pro- when they're framing out a, uh, an issue and thinking about their problem of should I even consider? Is it painful enough? Somehow, and that your conversation there is part about getting them to consider change. You're not going to sell them at that point on what you do, but can I move to the next step? Is but, it intriguing enough that you might have an approach? Well, let's let's just break that down sure. uh, because like because that's a really easy place. But most salespeople recognize the wall that you run into early on. So think about from and this begins with marketing. So marketers, you know, you're really good at putting copy on websites. So you have web. You start there thinking. Then uh, they fill out a, a form, and every salesperson knows this. You get an inbound lead, they fill the form out, and you call them. And they're like, I don't really, you know, they, they don't want to meet with you. Like it's really weird, you know. The, so they raise their hand. There's something going on. They didn't fill the form out because they woke up that morning and went, you know, well, I'm going to go fill forms out. Something's going on, but they begin to hide from you. So you get that wall, and then as you get to the first time appointment, it's trying to move them into discovery when they're like, just give me the prices. So you have all of this going on. And you've got these people that, like, in the middle of this, like, they can be, like, you can look at it and go, your business is completely falling apart. The, it's burning down. I've got, I've got a fire extinguisher. And they're like, well, you know, let me think about it. Or, you know, I'm not quite sure. So, um, so let's introduce a word called heuristics, right? So this is how human beings look at the world. Like you said, you know, if, it, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Like, right. so it's a heuristic. Shortcut. So we, That's we, right. all these, we use these middle shortcuts because there's so much coming at us that we have a hard time making decisions if you were trying to make a decision based on billions of different pieces of information that are hitting you all day long. So human beings use these simple patterns, right? Where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, the, uh, they, use, they use that to make these very quick judgments about whether they should change, take a risk, or do anything. And we've already established that we don't like change. Like we are totally against change, totally against risk. How do, I, I'm, I'm taking you off subject a little bit, but how do you leverage messaging to break those patterns so that you can get that moment? Sometimes it just takes an instant to get the person to open up so that you can get in. And it's not off pattern at all, uh, because this is this is the hardest part, uh, the case for change, to getting uh, people to to at least consider 
is, um, I call it the, the high and early conversations. It's early in their decision-making process, it's kind of higher in the organization. So people who uh, have to live with a problem. They're, they're, if the place is on fire, right, who's, who's really uh, feeling it the most? And so how do you use messaging? Well, you don't, and, and I think a lot of really good salespeople instinctively know this, but you don't go in and tell them, wow, your place is on fire. You but, you, <laughs> but you know what? You wouldn't believe how many people do that. Right. Like they, they, their first move is to tell you that your baby's ugly. And right. I know this as a CEO of a company that, you know, you're, you're here in our business. We're not perfect. I mean, you know, we put on a facade, but but behind the the uh, the walls, it's all chaos all the yes. time. And when I have someone come in and point out that you know it's chaos all the time, it just pisses me off. It doesn't make me want to bring them in and spend time with them. Right. It's not empathetic. No. So you're you're coming in with your your superhero cape on to save the day. That's the wrong approach because people that's threatening to them. It's uh, they might have made some of the decisions in the past that have led to the smoke rolling from underneath the door and and people don't want to emotionally uh, own that. So, but what you can do with your messaging is be empathetic but also be insightful. You know, the the flames that are coming out of the we see this sort of thing on a fairly regular basis when I work with companies a lot like yours. We see it, one of the main root causes is or here's how it tends to show up. And uh, here, there, there's some things that you can do to, to mitigate that. Get me perfect, we can make that a lot better. So if you approach it from a sense of understanding about what, it's, you know, what the problems are, the financial cost, the emotional cost, things like that, and give a sense that, you know, um, this is not for, you're not the only one that's had to deal with this, and there are better and worse ways to, to deal with it. So things like that, with, with some empathy and some insight at the same time, I think that moves you along. So that way, um, one of the, shortcuts that I use. We always talk about being trustworthy and being a trusted advisor. I find my psychological shortcut from years of study, I've just kind of boiled it down to what I think works. Your trustworthiness is equal parts empathy and expertise. So you get me and you know what you're talking about. So Okay, let's stop right there. Yeah. Get. Okay. So human beings have really two insatiable needs. One, to feel significant. The other, to be understood. And you can't understand someone enough, nor can you make someone feel too much like they matter. And you just said something beautiful there. They want to know that you get them, or at least that you're trying to get them. Like, if you're, if you're making the attempt to step into their shoes, people will give you grace. And, and this is where I think that we have the, a breakdown, and, and I'm going to dial this back to something that you taught us a little bit earlier, is that we're wired to think about ourselves. We're built to think about ourselves. We get a dopamine hit when we think about ourselves. And what you just described was that the best way to build messaging is to think about other people, like to, yes. to put, put on empathy, which is really difficult because when you're thinking about other people, you're not getting that dopamine hit of I'm important, I matter, I'm significant, which you feel when you're talking, when you're explaining things, nor if you're thinking about yourself, can you ever step into someone else's shoes or really listen to them? So that the words that you use demonstrate that you get them. Yes. And when people feel like you get them or you're trying to get them, that's when they begin to trust you. and That's when the doors begin to open up. Absolutely. And I have a few few peeves of, of, or suggestions on specific words. But, but that's the thing that you want to think about is you want to establish your trustworthiness. There's the, there's the cool, objective part of it. It's the logos on the website. It's your years of experience. It's your credentials. It's, it's all of that sort of thing that you know what you're talking about. 
but the the empathy part is dicier and I'd say is at least as important as the expertise. And Jeb and everyone, why I focus a lot on conversation, that's where you demonstrate empathy. That's where you actually get a sense of understanding. That's where you learn the language that your prospect uses and can reflect that. And you can, you can go in a little bit deeper. You can have a lot of the expertise stuff on your website and in your materials and in your corporate positioning, but it's empty. If I, somebody can be, I could have a family business that I'm trying to, to, you know, trying to be in transition uh, somehow. And, and I can want to hire maybe a great accountant or a tax attorney or someone like that. And they really know what they're doing, but if they haven't worked with someone like me and know all the family dynamics that go in the emotions of selling a business or transferring it down and, and that sort of thing like that, it's like, I, I can find another tax attorney. I can find another accountant, but I need someone that, that, gets all the moving pieces and the and the hopes and the dreams and the fears and the all that as well. And so the the message of of you know, again asking good questions, reflecting things back, being truly interested in the moment. Um, and, and here's a little clue from the whole messaging and conversational piece is frankly, if you talk less in a conversation, then the other person will think you're a brilliant conversationalist. Mm-hmm. It's so it, it, it's in it, counterintuitive, but sometimes the less you say, the better people think you are yeah. as a communicator. Well, if you think about it, the most unlockable human being in your life is a person that's standing in front of you talking about themselves. Yes. Right? So the more you listen, the more you make people feel significant, the more they feel significant, and the more you listen, the more you understand their language. When you repeat back what they say to you and your messaging, which can be just a set of patterns, but you can just drop the messaging their language in, then they feel like you get them, then they trust you, and when they trust you, it opens a door for more. Yeah. May I, and may I share with you where I see is a fundamental mistake uh, that happens, because all the things that we're talking about, I bet people watching and listening nod their heads, yeah, I'll get it, mm-hmm. I understand the other person, ask the good questions, we do understand that. But what I find is that even in experienced professionals, good companies, they sell good products and solutions and services, but that the pattern, they're, they're trying to go in reverse with their messaging and their conversation. So if, if the, one of the early things that, that buyers prospects are trying to figure out for themselves, consciously or not, is why should I change? The next one that they have to try to figure out is what's the urgency? Is it something that I need to do now? Because we have 25 different good ideas around here, but we can only handle four or five priorities around this place. So why does yours need to move up? in our priorities. And then it's why you, you know, why, why your product, why your idea as opposed to me doing it myself or a named competitor or yep. class of competitors. And, and it really goes in that direction. But what I tend to find through the messaging in particular is that too many sales teams and too many individual reps go backwards. The first question they're trying to answer is the why me? I'm going to tell you how great I exactly. am and, and what makes me different and all that. But at that point, you haven't yet connected to a problem that they have. And so that gets a little bit, um, that gets a little bit frustrating. Well, they don't, they don't understand how great we are. So how do I promote a sense of urgency? And usually it's a, in a fairly false way. Let's cut the price. Let's bundle it differently. Let's have a limited time offer. Let's do something yeah. like that. And that doesn't seem to get anywhere. Or if you do draw some buyers in, they're probably there for the wrong reasons because you're cheap. Yeah. And they're not committed to to doing the things that they need to do for your solution to work the best. And then they say, oh, we just haven't made the case for change. We have to educate the market all over again and the like. 
because, again, that's how our brains are, are wired. I think it takes a structured process led by a leader that brings together marketing and sales and others who are involved in conversations and think, what are the, what's the sequence, what's the framework, and knowing that there's a little different flavor to the, the introductory conversation, the change conversation, the sense of urgency conversation, the why we're different conversation, and, and the close. So um, they should be related, of course, but... Uh, having some discipline about that because, again, because the way that our brains are wired, because of the turnover of people in a sales organization, because people are shifting roles and territories and coming in and out, you're never going to get better as a team and you're right going to get better as an individual if you don't approach this with the right structure and the discipline and the practice and getting it to the point where, as you were talking about before, you now naturally have that sort of conversational pattern, but it's not natural. And unless you've been through that discipline. Yeah, the if you look at our, our messaging patterns and my you know, sales EQ or fanatical prospecting, um, video prospecting, we always begin with relate, like relate to the person and then build a bridge. So build a bridge from their situation to how you can make it better. So like you mentioned the business owner, the problem is, is that we don't, take the time to really think about like who the other person is. So for example, if I'm approaching a business owner and um, I've got a, you know, something that can help them, typically I might say, you know, Jim, I can't even imagine what it must be like to be in your shoes where you spent all of this time and effort building your business and you're working almost every single day, day and night. All you think about is your business and you never really seem to have time to be able to go enjoy all of the success that you've, that you've gained. And I work with a number of people like you to help them find more time in their week so that they can have that that time. Uh, I don't know what, whether what we do would be the right thing for you, uh, but I thought it might be a good idea for us to sit down together so I can show you how I'm helping other business owners in your situation get more time to in their life for the good things. And then you and I can make a decision from there whether or not it makes sense for us to keep talking. How about we get together Thursday at 2? Now, I just made that up based on a prompt that you gave me about a business owner, but I use a very a very specific pattern. Yes. Relate first, mm -hmm. bridge, and then I do a takeaway. And all I did was I said, I'm not sure this would be the right thing for you. Uh, why don't we get together? And then you and I can make a decision whether we should keep talking. And then that process, what I've done is I've taken away the, the you call it the reptile brain, but the, the, the brains will run away from anything that's risky. There's no risk in looking. There's no risk in, hey, we'll make a decision. There's I'm not. There's no selling. And there's a heuristic that people use with salespeople. Salesperson's pushing, run away. I know what this looks like. So if you, if you don't sound like that salesperson, you begin to break that pattern in their brain. They lean in. And all you're looking for early on is just give me an opportunity. And most salespeople, worth their salt, will tell you, if you can get me there, I can win. So I, th I think that the it really comes down to you you've used empathy over and over and over again is and i love that you said we say the words like we know what we're supposed to do you I, and there's nobody who's listened to this podcast who hasn't heard this before it's it's actually doing it like it's it's choosing and i think this is intentional to step in their shoes and the way that i do this in a classroom and i i bet you do the same thing is i say okay stop 
tell me about the person that you are having a conversation with. And it always begins with this sort of cardboard demographic of the person. And I'm going to go, no, no, no. What are they feeling? What are they experiencing? What's happening in their life? And then they'll go, blah, 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 blah. I go, no, you're a business owner. You've spent the last 20 years building this business. What do you want? And then they start to get it. And as soon as people get it, they know exactly what to say. And the reason they know what to say is because they are human. But I think that we have to learn how to put our human hat on in order to, to begin the process of really honing and building messages that connect with other people. And the, the way to do that isn't a complete blank slate. Tell me where your pain is. Oh, what keeps you up at night? Please, oh, I just did never, a course ever, yeah. on. I just did a microbite on Salesforce University on stop asking people their pain points. Right. A salesperson, truly, I, it's really hard for me. To, I'm almost speechless when a salesperson gets on a call with me. You can look me up on the internet. Like I've written 15 books on sales, and your first move is, Jeb, tell me about your pain points. And I'm like, I'm literally, my mouth will drop open and go. And the last kid that did that, I go, who taught you to do that? People don't tell their doctor what <laughs> their, their pain, pain points, points are. are. So they're not going to tell you. So uh, so it's not that, nor is it, I know exactly what's going on with you. And I've got a pre-packaged thing that's perfect for you. It's 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 more like the, the scenario that you just made up. Um, you did some things, and obviously by now you're very fluid in doing that. So um, you never appeared as a salesperson. You appeared as someone who works with people that are kind of like me in that scenario. So you talked about, you know, some of the, I, I feel the frustration, and I know that they sometimes want to do other things, not just their their uh, their jobs, uh, but their job matters to them. Um, I'm not sure exactly what, you know, but, but uh, if I had a few more hours in a week or a couple of weeks in the year where I could do other things, um, and I, on the other end of that, was thinking about what would I do? with yeah. a, an, another hour or two in the week or another week or two in the year uh, if I wasn't worried about my business or whatever it is that, that you want. But you never talked about a product. You never talked about a solution. You never told me you knew exactly what I needed. Um, and then you, but if you're, if you're open to a conversation, I can share some things that are common to, to folks like you. Then, of course, you gave them a very specific time, like, you know, don't just say, hey, we should meet sometime, uh, you know, Thursday at 2 which I know is part of the, the discipline of this as well. So that's something, again, that you have, you're, you're fluid with, and it demonstrates some empathy and understanding without imposing um, my, my prescription right away. Because if you tell me that you know exactly what I want, my, my mental heuristic mm -hmm. is, uh, no, you don't. Yes, because I'm not exactly like everybody else. My company's not exactly like everybody else. Now, I am interested if you worked with a lot of business owners uh, in my space that because people are also inherently interested in what other people like them yeah. are doing. Social That's proof. why they go to social yeah. proof. That's why they go to industry conferences. That's why they, they hang out with, with folks like themselves. It's like the, why they're in peer advisory groups, right? And so if you offer a little bit of a window on that, that makes you particularly valuable too. Very good. Okay. I want to switch gears real quickly, and we're going to end this conversation where we started. Salespeople, business people, people, for some reason or another, and you said it's been years in the making, have 
in general, I'm saying this in general, okay, I know there are people who really know how to write. I get that. And I know people that can write and then they edit, they get better and better and better. And, and a lot of good writing is about the editing process. But there's a lot of people who really struggle with this. And you're listening to this and you're going, okay, great, 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 great. You're talking about the writing, but I still suck at it. How can people use tools? We've got brand new tools that are that are hitting the market now. These are going to get better and better and better. I mean, you, you just think GPT Chat 3 against GPT Chat 4. The difference is... Uh, it's, I mean, it's not an evolution. It is ten times better, just overnight. And there's, there's going to be more of these tools coming out that will help people, basically, be better versions of themselves if they use it the right way. So it's essentially like you're attaching a robot to your brain, and the robot can help you develop better language. And I'll give you an example. We, uh, we wrote a four paragraph description of something the other day ago. And uh, Ulysses, who is our producer on this podcast, said, that's a lot of words. Um, it needs to be more concise. So uh, we dropped it back into GPT chat, and we said, make this more concise. The robot did that. Now, what it did wasn't perfect, it, but it was more concise. And then we went back and looked at it, and this, this goes back to empathy, stepping into the person who's going to read its shoes, thinking about the how do we – how do we provoke an emotion in them? The robot doesn't know how to provoke an emotion. It just wrote words. So we changed some words around, put a few things that the robot took back, took out of it, but we ended up taking, going down from four paragraphs to two really tight paragraphs, but we did it way faster than we would have done it on our own. And it was a really good use of the tool. I, I want to talk about how people can use it well and how people use it poorly. And the thing that I'm worried about poorly, just to get, give you this prompt, is that they don't go back and check it. Like they just run it through there and that becomes a message and they send it to somebody. And then salespeople start doing that in mass. And pretty soon all the messaging looks exactly the same because if you go play with the robot for a while, you'll notice that the robot, just like me, when I'm doing messaging, I have a set of patterns that I work from. The robot works from a set of patterns. And you don't see that on one thing that it produces, but if you if you go and prompt it multiple times, you'll see the word salad that it starts to create. Right. So so how do how can people who say I struggle with writing use robots to enhance their ability and make them better at it without becoming a robot themselves? Ooh, that was pretty Ooh, good. That, I like that. That's good. But that might be an article. Yeah, that's a that's a post right there. Uh I think we have to understand where automation tends to work and where it doesn't. And I, we've had some experience with other things. Now, ChatGPT is its own flavor of this, and it's impressive in lots of ways. Um, but I, I think what it can do is certainly raise the floor for your writing and across a group. So it won't be uh, – at the very least, you should be using something like Grammarly. Right? Yes. To just, mm -hmm. just get rid of the – the obvious kinds of things. And so yeah, I tell you what Grammarly helped me with was uh, I was when I this is probably two or three books in. I wanted to get my my language tighter. So I started running everything through Grammarly. And what Grammarly really helped me with was removing the passive voice. Like it's like really like it would say this is passive. And I would look at it and go, this doesn't sound passive. But then when I would fix it, it taught me how to do that. Now I don't need Grammarly to know when I'm writing in a passive voice. So that was that was one of the at least the little things that taught me from a writing standpoint. And we could all get better with those sorts of tools and and recognizing our own patterns for for better or for worse. So 
if you're not using just the simple things right now, you should be, uh, because the you can write a lot of things really well, and then you get one big thumb that's sticking out there that's a poor word choice or something. Then it, it really does erode uh, the impact of what you have to say. The uh, uh, and I think it can help us be a lot more efficient. I think just in terms of sales teams, you know, how would you use ChatGPT? Well, you can you can find out a lot of industry patterns. You can look at you know common pain points, hate to use the term. Uh, there are a lot of things that you can do uh, in research and you talk about with, with writing as well that it can help. But let's recognize a few things too. No automation. I was, uh, no automation is authentic to you. Yes. So it won't be exactly your voice. Uh, automation doesn't have passion. It doesn't have innovation. And it doesn't have empathy. And so... Uh, one of the things we talked about uh, higher education these days, and 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 now my classes we don't do a lot of report writing or research reports, but there are a lot of classes that do. Obviously, the the advent of uh, Chat GPT is plagiarism on steroids, right? So it, it's so easy to write a research report on you name it, um, and so how do how do professors deal with it? One uh, I saw that I thought was very clever. They, they had this assignment of it, what they wanted uh, the students to write about. The professor put that through ChatGPT and said, okay, here was the first cut. You, student, take this and edit it. Improve it, update it, because the, the database on which ChatGPT, I think, ran out in maybe late 2021. So I want you to, to update this, and I want you to edit it and take it from there. And, um, and I'll know what you edited from. So it's not the, the creating it, but the put in your own voice, put in your own examples, add some empathy and the like. So I think it can set a floor, but don't get lazy, right? And make sure that all the things that we talk about, again, I want to, I want to be authentic. I want to be innovative. I want to be, you know, my, my passion and my belief to come through and especially my empathy it's not a, a full substitute. Yeah, I think that I think going back to we said earlier, don't get sloppy. Getting sloppy and getting lazy is you just use the robot. And the, this is the truth about salespeople. Everybody right now is working on like we had one of our students who said, I'm using chat GPT to put my messaging in so that I can get people to engage on LinkedIn. And it's working for a while. Because salespeople destroy everything <laughs> right. that works because we overuse it. So uh, I'm I'm using it. I'm I'm a writer, and I'm finding that it enhances what I already do. Uh, I'm not writing books with it, but I'm using it to like build lists for me. So I need a list of things that do this. But what really makes it work is what you said: is I go back in, and it gives me the basis to begin with, the foundation. So that speeds up the 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 thought process. So typically, you come up with an idea, and then you go do the research. Well, it just basically does that 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 work for me in about 15 seconds. Then I have to come in as a human being and build it and make it mine and add the things that are important to me that 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 only I could write, only I can say. Uh, I think that's the key, and we'll see how we'll see where this goes. Uh, but I think that it's uh, it's got promise. I do, I will say that suddenly the verbal communication has gotten much more valuable than written communication because these days, now that you have a robot that can write almost like a human, anything that's written, you don't believe. Anything that's written is not trustworthy. But if I say it to you, it's trustworthy. So it has enhanced the careers and the reasons why salespeople are going to exist because 
at the end of the day, nobody likes talking to a robot. And pro tip, I think um, it's a, it's been a longstanding tip, and particularly bringing in uh, the robot into this. For your writing, say it out loud or have someone else say it out loud. If you've been looking at the same thing and editing it for five versions, the way things come across when you read them, because even if you're reading it, you're saying it in your head. So is it the words that you would say? Is it the way that you would talk in conversation, even if it's on a screen or on a, on a written page? I think, think speech, think conversation, and, uh, and authentic conversation, as you said. Awesome. Well, Jim, thank you so much for having you. <laughs> Jim, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be for, here. For, for getting on the Sales Gravy podcast with me. I'm so glad that you uh, that you jumped on, and, and I hope that, that everyone who is watching and listening will go to Sales Gravy University, check out some of your courses on messaging. They're awesome. They're fantastic, and they're they're authentic. That's just the way that, that you come across uh, as a human being. So you're going to love these courses. And uh, and if you've never taken a course on Salesgrave University, this means you have to be a first-time user. Uh, this won't work if you've already got an account. But if you're a first-time user, you can go to learn.salesgravy.com, learn.salesgravy.com, and you can take any course in the catalog. It doesn't make a difference which one it is. You can take it absolutely free. And if you love it, make sure you tell your boss about it and uh, and your boss can come talk to us about a team account for your entire sales team. Learn.salesgravy.com, learn.salesgravy.com. Use code free course and we'll see you next time on the Sales Gravy Podcast. Mm-hmm.